Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Good morning, welcome to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. It's Wednesday the 18th of October. I'm Michael Bailey and today we're asking... Why are Italy at risk of missing another major tournament? Italy's in transition. Uh, It has been since the team failed to qualify for the World Cup in Qatar. How patient do Man United fans need to be over their potential new investors? This one shouldn't take that long. All the due diligence has been done. And are Barcelona still in trouble over alleged corruption involving Spain's referees? There's a huge range of punishments for all the sides. This is the Daily Football Briefing with Michael Bailey. Let's start at Wembley, where England proved far too strong for Italy. Kane wants it at the back post. Still Rashford! England in front! Oh, Kane has got there ahead of Scaloni. Can he finish it as well? Of course he can! Vintage Harry Kane! Two for Kane, three for England. Germany beckons. Those were the last two goals as England won 3-1, confirming their place at Euro 2024 in Germany. Things are much more dicey for Italy, however. Their loss and Ukraine's comeback win in Malta means the defending European champions could yet miss out on next summer's finals. Don't forget, they have also failed to qualify for the last two World Cup finals. James Horncastle is our Italian football writer and he was at Wembley. James... Fair to say this was the night's worst case scenario. Why is a country as strong as Italy now struggling just to qualify for major tournaments? Italy's in transition. Uh, It has been since the team failed to qualify for the World Cup in Qatar. That was the end of a cycle. So, for example, Giorgio Chiellini uh, retired after that. Leonardo Bonucci became the captain. If you look at some of the other Members of that Italy Euro winning side, Jorginho, he's been eclipsed by Declan Rice at Arsenal, has only made one start this season. You've then got Verratti, who at age 30 has moved to play in Qatar. And then Insigne, Insigne went to play in MLS uh, for Toronto. Chiesa is often injured. And so it means that this team that uh, Roberto Mancini, the predecessor of Luciano Spalletti, tried to move on, you know, is still yet to really take shape. And I think there is some sympathy for Spalletti. Spalletti was supposed to be on a sabbatical and instead, you know, Mancini uh, resigns to take the Saudi Arabia job. Spalletti gets parachuted in. First game is against North Macedonia. Brings back a lot of memories, bad memories for Italy fans and some members of this squad because that was the team that they lost to in the World Cup semi-final playoff. Meant that they didn't go to uh, the World Cup in Qatar. And look, I mean, this Italy team, it's got new centre-back partners. Centre-backs who are used to playing in a back three rather than a back four. It changes every... Uh, every game. Uh, we also see the, the number six, the deep-lying playmaker, the regista in front of the defence keeps changing. So this is an Italy team at this moment without reference points. 
How has the performance against England altered your feelings over Italy's chances of making next summer's Euros, James? So Spalletti has this saying, it's uh, your destiny is, is ultimately defined by your character. If you've got strong character, then good fortune uh, will, will come to you. And Italy are going to need all of that strength of character going into these final two games. They have a game in hand and they also have an advantage on heads ahead. But they play North Macedonia again in Italy. You know, So that's something, as I mentioned, that will bring some trepidation. And then they play Ukraine in what feels like a playoff to avoid a playoff. And, you know, given Italy's recent record in playoffs, go back to 2017 when they lost to Sweden and they didn't go to the World Cup for the first time in half a century. You go back to what I just mentioned, the North Macedonia uh, playoff in Palermo. Yeah, these are things that bring pessimism. They bring gloom. And we have this betting scandal, which may yet enlarge and engulf um, Syria uh, in a way that uh, affects preparation for these games coming up in November. So whilst I have faith in Spalletti and faith in this group of players, it is a very difficult situation that Italy now face. Thanks, James. As for England, it was a fun night for Harry Kane. The captain scored a brace, which means he's now England's record goal scorer at Wembley with 24 goals. That took him above Bobby Charlton's 23. Friend of the briefing, Tim Spears, was also at Wembley, keeping an eye on England. Tim, three goals, qualification confirmed, victory in arguably their biggest test at Wembley ahead of the Euros, even cheers for Harry Maguire and Jordan Henderson. This was one of the good nights, hey? Yeah, it really was a good night, which, to be honest, for a decent part of the first half looked unlikely when Italy were in the lead. They had England on the ropes, making defensive errors. Calvin Phillips looked rusty. Kieran Trippier left exposed. Harry Kane giving the ball away in danger, dangerous positions. And then all of a sudden, Jude Bellingham takes the game by the scruff of the neck, ignites the fans, wins a penalty. Yeah, very Gerard-esque performance from him. Um, he then teed up the second goal, winning the ball inside, uh, inside his own half, lobbing an Italy player in their half and then laying up for Marcus Rashford who does the rest with a really clinical finish and then Kane tops it off with his 61st goal for England in his 87th appearance and yeah after some early defensive bubbles I thought England saw the game through really impressively so yet again they reach a major tournament with ease to be honest you know it's two games to spare this time and their qualification record is, is exceptional you know since they failed to reach Euro 2008 they've topped every group they've played in they've lost two games out of 72 and uh, yeah, they're, they're through. They're through to the Euros. Thanks, Tim. Elsewhere, European minnows San Marino scored their first goal in 17 competitive matches. That was back in September 2021. I make it 1,543 minutes of competitive football without scoring a single goal. Not only did they score, they equalised at home to Denmark after Rasmus Hoyland's opener. Headed out and volley back in. It's in! San Marino scored! It's the captain, Alessandro Golinucci, and it's 1-1. Their first competitive goal for more than two years. Sadly, for fairy tale lovers everywhere, Danish blushes were spared as Yusuf Poulsen earned Denmark a 2-1 win and most likely a place at next summer's finals. Like the men, England's women have plenty to look forward to. The Lionesses are in the middle of a Nations League campaign. Next up, a doubleheader against Belgium at the end of the month. Serena Wiegmann's squad has been confirmed. 
Frank Kirby is back after eight months out injured, but there's no Beth Mead despite her return for Arsenal on Sunday after knee surgery. Chloe Morgan is women's football editor at The Athletic and she joins us now. Chloe, what did Serena Wiegmann have to say on her squad selections? Well, she was very brief, ever true to the Serena fashion. She was also very direct. Um, so she basically said, you know, the first question that was asked was, you know, how did Beth Mead miss out? You know, was, was she did she come close to the selection? And uh, Serena said, no, not very close at all. You know, and I think there's there's obviously good reasons for that, despite making her, you know, first appearance since her injury uh, on Saturday at the Emirates against Aston Villa. I mean, she did come on at the 88th minute. I mean, what an impact that she's had. She's definitely set out her stall to be part of the squad in, in later fixtures. But, you know, to come on in the 88th minute, have 15 minutes really of uh, of play. Uh, she did get the assist with Alessia Russo. So she's definitely sort of, um, you know, setting her sights on, on getting back in as quickly as possible. But um, I think it was just probably one one fixture too, too early for her. You're listening to The Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. It's felt like a big week for Manchester United since the news broke that Ineos owner Sir Jim Ratcliffe has lined up buying 25% of the club. We had plenty on that in Monday's briefing, but that was a whole two days ago. So where are we now? Football news and investigation writer Matt Slater is with us. Matt, Manchester United fans will be desperate for an update since the news broke over the weekend. So the question is, what's happened since the news broke over the weekend? We know there's a... There's a board meeting on Thursday, a Manchester United board meeting on Thursday, and that's important. We know that direction of travel is very much Ineos, Sir Jim Radcliffe, this minority stake, 25%, about 1.3 billion. The key bit is they want sporting control. He wants to run the football team and the Glazers appear. We are slightly guessing again to be willing to grant that and they will carry on running the other bits of the business. But that's that's where we're at, really. There's so many unanswered questions still, though, about is he going to borrow money? How is he going to borrow money? What's it secured against? I can pretty much assure you that he won't be putting any more debt on the club. So that's a kind of important distinction between his approach and the Glazer approach. But, you know, how does that control issue work? Uh, what will he do to the sporting department, to the manager? You know, how quickly does he get to the stadium and the training ground? All that sort of stuff. We don't know. And Eric Ten Hag will be among those waiting to find out, of course. I've seen a few eyes cast over United's share price having dropped since the news. Does that really matter? It doesn't matter, I'm afraid. Not anymore. Every time they thought Sheikh Jazim and the Qataris were in front, they would buy shares and the price would go up because... Sheikh Jazim was offering to buy all of the shares. Jim Radcliffe's bid was never for all of the shares. It was only for Glazer shares, the 69% that they own. And that plan has changed a couple of times and we're now in this sort of minority plan, minority stake space. But his bid was unattractive. So whenever he was in front or whether it looked like the Glazers were going to do nothing and hold on, the share price went down. So that's that's why it has been interesting. And unsurprisingly, since Saturday's news, the share price has fallen. And just finally, Matt, from your experience from other takeovers or investments into clubs, once the board meeting is done and if it all gets approved, does, do things happen quite quickly from there? Or is, is there going to be more patience needed for United fans? This one shouldn't take that long. All the due diligence has been done, right? So all those tricky bits, that's all been done. I mean, you know, we've written about that so many times. So Jim shouldn't have a, any problem with the fit and proper. He owns other clubs already, other sports teams already. He's a famous guy. He's a British billionaire. So all that kind of regulatory stuff is fine. He isn't buying, he's not doing anything particularly complicated. He's buying shares 
almost presume, well, we, we assume from glazers, from the glazers, right? So that's that's easy. That's a sort of private transaction. It shouldn't take long. But, you know, what are we? The best part of a year into this process. So, um, you know, just take that with a massive pinch of salt. Thanks, Matt. And you'll be able to keep tabs on developments at Old Trafford over at theathletic.com and on the app. And finally, Barcelona may be unbeaten in La Liga, but they're facing some hefty legal charges off the pitch. The Negreda case has taken another turn and Paul Balus is here to explain it all. Paul, remind us what this case involving Barcelona and Jose Maria Enriquez Negreda was originally about. So basically, to keep it simple and sort of plain, uh, the Negreda case is an open investigation from the Spanish Prosecution's office into FC Barcelona and some former executive and presidents from the club over multiple payments by the value of more than 7 million euros made from the club to the president of the Spanish Referees Committee, Jose Maria Enriquez Negreira. And in March, Barcelona as a club and more people, as I mentioned, like including former presidents Jose Maria Bartomeu, Sandro Rossell and club executive Oscar Grau and Albert Soler, were charged with three crimes that were corruption in sport, malfeasance and breach of trust. This investigation was trying to find some sort of evidence into the corruption in sport, which was like the biggest charge, if you want to call it that way. But it appears that they haven't found clear evidence so far. When we talk about evidence in, in this case, we mean like referees confessing that they have been bribed or that, or that they have helped Barcelona on the pitch. So basically the judge or the investigation has not been able to find that. And that's when it, it brings us to two weeks ago when the judge Arroyo just switched a bit his approach and added a new charge to this investigation. Yeah, this has changed things, hasn't it now? So take us through what has changed, what that means. The judge added like a new charge, which is the charge of bribery. If it ends up going to trial, it won't be a judge, uh, the one who will give the sentence. It would be like a popular jury. So just imagine, like a popular jury of people from Barcelona uh, trying to decide about FC Barcelona itself and just considering that maybe one person is a fan of the club and another one is a Real Madrid fan. So it would be like a crazy, crazy situation. But the key, the real key of the issue is that in Spain, like to commit the crime of bribery, you need that one of the criminal sides involved is a public worker or a public entity that works basically for the government. And the referees or the Spanish FA, they are not depending on the Spanish government. However, the judge here, um, he states that despite not being public workers, they execute a public task, a public job. Barcelona believes this is not the case and that the referees cannot be considered public workers because they are not. Uh, they have all filed appeals to this. There's a huge range of punishments for all the sides. The one from Barcelona could go like from a multimillionaire fine until dissolution of the entity, but uh, speaking to legal experts, which is what we have done, it looks more likely probably that in these sort of cases, like an entity ends up with a big fine, basically. Thanks, Paul. And you can read his excellent explainer on the Negreda case over at The Athletic. As for your TV offering today, there is a fascinating game in prospect in France. Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester United are bidding to reach the group stages of this season's Women's Champions League. It's 1-1 after the first leg in Manchester. You can watch that one from 7pm on MUTV in the UK or 2pm Eastern on DAZN in the US. And that's all for today. Thank you for listening. I've been Michael Bailey. Your producer was Mike Zimmerman and executive producer was Ian McIntosh. If you're yet to do so, we'd love you to subscribe to the show and feel free to leave us a review if you can. It's Tim Spears with you tomorrow. In the meantime, have a cracking day. 
The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.